Our scripture this morning comes from the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves. If with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. So with yourselves. Since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or three at most, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged, and the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. This is God's word. Chris, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but I'm not Jonathan. And we'll prove that later on if my jokes are funny. (laughs) 
Good morning. My name is Terry Henderson, and I'm not one of the pastors here. And if you're uh, visiting with us uh, for the first time, let me encourage you to come back next week when everything is more normal. But um, I have the privilege to, uh, to do this about once a year. Uh, evidently, that's about the statute of limitations, and, and so I get to do this. And it takes me that long to prepare for it, so it's probably a good thing that, uh, that it's only a year uh, at a time. And since he does a good job week to week, uh, preaching, I thought I would take some cues from Drew on preparing for the sermon. So I watched The Hobbit, Lord of the Rings, <laughs> all of the Harry Potter movies, The Chronicles of Narnia, and I have a great illustration that I'll use later on that involves Frodo and Harry Potter, and they're traveling to Narnia for a huge battle with the, mug- with the muggles at Mordor. And then they all celebrate by eating butterbeer-flavored ice cream at Serendipity. (laughs) So we'll see how all that works out. Back in January, we began this series uh, of messages called The Wisdom of the Gospel. And Drew and Jonathan have been preaching through 1 Corinthians. And today we're looking at chapter 14, and this is actually the last... Uh, message in this series. We're going to go back to chapter 13 over the next few weeks, but this is the last, the last chapter in the series. Let's go back a couple of weeks. In chapter 12, you may recall that Paul used the metaphor of the body, of the human body, to talk about the gifts of the church and how each member of the church is gifted and how important each one of the gifts is to the mission of the church. He said, just as there are many parts of the body, there are many gifts, and every gift is critical to the church. And evidently, the Corinthian believers were very gifted, so much so that, as we saw last week in chapter 13, they begin to be preoccupied and to boast in the gifts rather than concentrating on loving one another. So Paul wrote chapter 13 to show them the more excellent way, as he called it, to focus on love and not the gifts. And that brings us to chapter 14. Now, you do know that this is a letter, right? So Paul didn't have chapter breaks in the letter. So, so if you kind of look at, really, chapter 11 through where we are today, he's dealing with some issues that the, that the Corinthians have. The, the gifts, he talks about the gifts and how important they are, but then in chapter 13, he says love is really the most important thing. And in chapter 14, this chapter deals with primarily the gifts in the context of the corporate worship service and how love and gifts can be brought together for the benefit of the church. And we're going to take a a look at three areas that you'll see on your outline. First of all, the issues that Paul is dealing with with the Corinthian worship services. And I'm going to very briefly touch on his instructions for them, for their worship services. And then we're going to talk about the implications. We're going to spend some time talking about how that affects what we do here today. First, the issues Paul is concerned about. As Drew mentioned last week, the Corinthian believers were very talented. They were blessed with many gifts, but based on Paul's focus, one could deduce that some in Corinth felt that the gift of tongues was the more important gift, even to the point that some may have felt that those who spoke in tongues were superior Christians. And Paul had maybe heard or seen this for himself And he saw the kind of damage this attitude was doing to the church. In Paul's view, using any gift in a way that was not beneficial to the entire church for other people was not love. So starting in verse 1 of chapter 14, Paul begins to contrast two gifts, prophecy and tongues. And really, those are the only two gifts he talks about in this chapter. 
Tongues was a gift in which the individual who had the gift spoke in a language that was unknown or unintelligible to the hearer unless someone interpreted. If no one interpreted, there was no benefit for the church because nobody understood it. Prophecy, which is similar to our preaching, not exactly, but similar to our preaching, was uttering words inspired by God. Unlike tongues, these words were understood by those who heard them. There's no need for interpretation, and since everyone can understand, there's benefit to the church. For this reason, Paul encourages the Corinthians to especially pursue the gift of prophecy. As I said, the only two gifts he discusses in this section are prophecy and tongues. And that strongly suggests that there was a disagreement or at least uncertainty among the Corinthians about these two particular gifts. So Paul begins to set forth the argument to the Corinthians that in the context of the church worship service, prophecy was the superior gift. And the summary of everything he's going to say, really, is found in chapter uh, 14, verse 4. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. That really is the heart of what he's after. Paul's emphasis over and over in this passage is the idea that no matter the gift, it's to be used to edify, to build up the church, not the individual with the gift. And he illustrates this point with three examples. Verse 6, Paul was well known and loved by the Corinthians. So he asked the, the readers, if he comes to them and he only spoke in tongues, how would he be of any benefit to them? How could he be, be of value to them unless he brought a teaching or a prophecy that they could understand? In other words, if they couldn't understand him, they would not be built up, and he would be bringing no benefit to them. It would be just as if he didn't come at all. And in verse 7, he uses another example, a musical analogy. Suppose a flute or a guitar just plays random notes. Sometimes guitar players do that, especially electric guitar players. They may enjoy themselves and have a really good time, but it doesn't mean anything to anybody because it's just random, right? How can it be a benefit to the hearer unless there's some sort of uh, structure to it, if we can understand it? And then in verse 8, he uses a military illustration. And so he imagines that the soldiers are ready for battle, and the way that they got their cue on what to do was a bugler would bugle. And so he, he says, what if the bugler plays a tune that nobody knows? Would they, should they retreat? Should they charge? What should they do? And so it would add to the confusion, and it would cause inaction among the soldiers because they didn't understand what was being bugled. So Paul Let's continue to work through this. Paul, in chapter, in, in verse 12, he says, You're eager for gifts, but the goal of the church, or the goal of exercising the gifts in the church is to build up the church. Now, in order for that to happen, the individual believers with these gifts had to focus on the needs of others above themselves. And focusing on one another is where the Corinthians seemed to struggle. Chapter 11, we saw it. When they came together to eat the Lord's Supper, some would eat and be full, and some would be hungry. In chapter 13, the focus, as we said earlier, was on the gift, not loving the individual. And now in this chapter, the Corinthians seem to be more interested in building themselves up rather than one another or the church. And that's the heart issue Paul is really after here. They were being selfish, not loving to one another. And this was causing disunity and issues among the believers. Now, Paul was also concerned about the effect on those he calls outsiders and unbelievers. And I think that is in verse 16 for the first time. 
the term outsider may refer to someone who's a believer but may be unfamiliar with their worship practices, maybe visiting from out of town or whatever, and maybe, or maybe it's someone who's unfamiliar with gifts at all. So that's what I think he refers to as an outsider. An unbeliever would be someone who had not come to faith in Christ, but maybe in the service because a friend invited them to come or maybe they were seeking to understand more about Christianity. So he refers to these two people. And in verse 16 particularly, he refers to someone in the church who has the gift of tongues and they are giving thanks without the, the uh, benefit of an interpreter. And so he poses this question, how could anyone, particularly outsiders, who hear that person giving thanks in a, in a language they didn't understand, say amen to it? How could they say, yes, I agree with that? if they don't understand it. It would be like me saying something really profound in Russian and expecting you to say amen at the end because you wouldn't know what I was saying, right? Paul says the other person in that case is not being built up, and he keeps coming back to this term over and over. We're not building up others. We're not loving them well. Then verse 23, he kind of imagines a situation, or maybe he's heard of this situation, where an unbeliever or an outsider comes to a service where everyone is speaking in tongues. Everybody who has the gift of tongues is speaking in tongues. And so he describes the chaos, and he says, will they not say you're out of your minds? But, he goes on, if the same person walks in and hears prophecy that they understand, if they hear words they understand, the end result, will be that God could use those words to, and he says, disclose the secrets of the heart. And maybe the end result would be that they would fall on their face and worship God and declare that God is really among the congregation. So two different, whole different results of that. One would be mass confusion, and, and they would think these people are crazy. If, if they heard the prophecy, they would, they would potentially be drawn to Christ. And so that's where Paul is really spending some time just contrasting these two gifts. One is for the benefit of the church, and one is for the benefit primarily of the individual if it's not interpreted. Now, you could think that Paul was trying to diminish the, the uh, gift of tongues or the, the uh, kind of put down that whole, the, the people who had the gift. But he says in verse 18, um, he says this, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. So he, he indicates that he has the gift, but he says, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind, in other words, five intelligible words in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in another tongue. And I think that really exposes what, what Paul's heart is about this. He realizes the importance of building up others by speaking in a language that everybody can understand. So the real issue is not tongues or no tongues. The real issue is that the Corinthian believers were not loving each other well in exercising their gifts. That's what it comes down to. That's chapter 13 leading into 14 tells us. They were exercising the gifts, especially the gift of tongues, in a way that benefited themselves but not the church. See, the gifts belong to the church, not to you, not to the individual. It's the same today. Whatever gifts God has given you are not yours. You can't hoard them. They were given to you for the benefit of the church. So let me encourage you not to keep them for yourself. Share those gifts. That's one way that you can love others well and build the body of Christ, and that's why we're called to this place. So those are the issues that Paul is dealing with, this whole idea that there's confusion in the service, there's there, the using the gift of tongues without interpretation was of no benefit to the church, only the individual, and that's what he was addressing. And very briefly, in this, just a couple of minutes, I want to talk about 
what what Paul instructs the uh, in Corinthians to do. So that was the issue he was dealing with. Now he gives them some instructions, beginning in verse 26. He refers to, verse 26, the, all the giftedness of the people. He says, when you come together, everybody has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation, right? So he, he, these people appear eager to exercise these gifts when they come together. But Paul reminds them that all of these are important, but they must be used in a way to strengthen the church. Let all things be done for building up, he says in verse 26. So no matter the gift, and no matter how excited you are to exercise the gift, it has to be done for building, building up. And then he specifically deals with the issue at hand, which again is for the Corinthians, was the gift of tongues and and maybe the misappropriation of that gift. So he very specifically instructs that only two or at the most three people would speak in tongues in a service, each taking a turn and only if there was an interpreter there because, again, if nobody understood what was being said, it wouldn't benefit the church, right? And since he put a renewed importance on prophecy, he set some boundaries there as well. Two or three preachers per service. How many of you think that's a good idea? What was Paul thinking? Uh, Paul, so Paul instructs everyone also, so he, he says there has to be an order, but he also instructs everyone to carefully weigh, to examine what the prophets said, right? And even the prophets were to follow a protocol of generosity and courtesy to one another by giving preference to one another. And you see that um, in this 26 and following. Then he reminds everyone that God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. Now, one thing that strikes me about these instructions is how short and simple they are, right? It's, It's a few verses. And everywhere in the New Testament that we get a glimpse into corporate worship of the New Testament church, it's the same. Very simple. Not a really long list of what to do or not to do. In Acts... Uh, we get a glimpse of the early church worship, and it's pretty simple. They get together, they fellowship, they pray, they eat, they listen to teaching. Jesus himself had a great opportunity in John 4 to describe exactly how we should worship. And here's what he said, a couple of verses. He said, someday it won't matter where you worship, but true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. Again, he didn't go into a, a long list of specific instructions on what a church worship service might look like. Now, you compare that to the Old Testament teachings about worship. A lot of the book of Leviticus deals with the minute details of worship, what the priests are to wear, how they conduct themselves, the responsibilities of people, and all in excruciating detail. But in the New Testament, it's not so detailed. You will not, for example, find a sample order of worship or a worship bulletin or folder or whatever we call them these days used in the early church. But Paul does suggest in this part of the passage, that there should be some purpose and order in the service. Verse 26, let everything that is done be done for building up. So there's a purpose in worship. Verse 33, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Verse 40, all things, and Jonathan said a couple weeks ago, this is the the uh, battle cry of Presbyterians, all things should be done decently in order, right? 
all things should be done decently in order. So Paul kind of gives us this idea that there should be some purpose and planning around getting together. Now the inference is that that was not the case in Corinth, that, that their services were not orderly, they didn't bring peace but disunity, they brought confusion, and maybe even to the point of chaos. And so in response, Paul writes this section of the letter to ensure that the services are well planned and thought out and the goal of building of the church and reaching unbelievers was always front of mind. At the end of the day, he was more interested that they love one another than anything else. So those are his instructions, and that's all the time I want to spend on that. I want to spend the rest of the time talking about the implications for us and why we're doing some of the things we're doing, uh, which is, I think, one of the reasons Drew asked me to do this particular um, passage. So what can we learn from Paul's letter and really the Bible in general about how we should we should conduct our worship services. It would be nice if Paul had included a required order of worship. Seriously, it would, so that we could just say, well, this is exactly what we're supposed to do every week, but he didn't. And that's why so many churches and denominations are markedly different when it comes to worship. Now, I'm not talking about necessarily contemporary music versus traditional or high church versus low church. I'm talking about the structure and the content of the service. And there are basically two approaches that churches can take, two principles, uh, overall principles, that, that churches usually fall into. One, and there's not a test on this, one is called the normative principle. And the normative principle says if it's not forbidden in Scripture, then it's permissible in the worship service. Right? So ideas for worship are developed over a number of years, and they become the norms for these churches. Now, I'll use an extreme example of that. The Bible doesn't specifically forbid, let's say, juggling, okay? So the church begins to incorporate juggling in their corporate service, and after a while it becomes the norm for that church or denomination, even though you can't really find it in the Bible. So that's the normative principle. The regulative principle says if it's not expressly permitted in the Bible, then it's forbidden. So it's just the opposite. If you can't find it in the Bible, then don't do it in worship. That's the regulative principle. And most Reformed churches adhere to this principle, and our our church does as well. See, we believe that the Bible is pretty clear on what can be included in worship, and we try to stick to that, which is exactly why we don't do juggling. Our church's uh, doctrinal statement is the Westminster Confession of Faith, and if you've been around very long, you, you know that. The chapter on worship, I think it's chapter 21, states this, and I'll quote it. The acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. In other words... We're not free to worship God the way that we please. He's clearly set forth in his word how he wants to be worshipped, even though there's no order of worship in here. Redeemer's first worship service was held in October of 2008, and many of you were, were here for that. But the dreams about a church plant began years before that, several years before that. And one of the things we thought a lot about was how we would structure the worship services, because it's important. It's the one time we get together every week corporately to worship God, and so we thought it was important enough to spend a lot of time thinking about it. 
After all, it's a new church, and we had a blank canvas to some degree to create the worship service the way we want to. But would it make sense to start from scratch? Would we only do the things opposite of what we didn't like in other churches that we'd seen, which is what some churches tend to do? Uh, if, they, if they don't like suits, they, they wear jeans, and if they don't like you know this, they, they do that. So would our personal preferences outweigh everything else? See, we would have been arrogant to think that everybody who came before us had it wrong and we had it right. But we also would be naive to think that everything before us was right. So it was really, we, we spent a lot of time thinking about it. We wanted to ensure that we could relate to the culture that we're in, in Winter Haven, Florida, not Chicago, not New York, but we're in Winter Haven, Florida. We wanted to relate to our culture, but we also wanted to f- hold firm to some of the traditions that have served the church well for hundreds of years. I know one of the books we read when we were doing this is by a guy named Robert Weber uh, called uh, Ancient Modern Worship or something. I'll get that wrong. But, but he really talked about taking those, those uh, principles from the past and incorporating them today. Dr. Brian uh, Chapel in his book entitled Christ-Centered Worship writes this. We should not ignore the wisdom of church forebears just because it's old or automatically reject it just because we didn't think of it. We consider the history because God does not give all of his wisdom to any one time or people. What he's saying is over 2,000 years, God has revealed himself, and we would be fools not to uh, take advantage of that. Now, we're fortunate in our denomination, the PCA, that we have some guidelines provided to us in this document we call the Book of Church Order. It's a blue book about this thick, and the session affectionately refers to it as the Big Blue Sleeping Pill. But that's a whole other sermon topic. This book describes, among other things, the responsibilities of officers, how we set up church government, how we receive members, and it also includes a few chapters on how to structure worship services. And it's based on the Westminster Confession that I read earlier. These elements that can be included according to our book of church order are the following. Scripture reading, singing of psalms and hymns, prayer, preaching, offerings, confessing the faith, which we'll do later on this morning, sacraments, which we'll do later on this morning, and taking oaths or vows, for example, membership vows. So those are, that's the list, right? No juggling, none of that. That's the list, right? So that's the practical application of the regulative principle we, we talked about earlier. It's how our church views and based on everything that we've seen in the Bible, that's what we, we view as the things, the elements that we can include in worship. So we take those elements and we create a liturgy, which is an order of worship, right? Now, why is it important to have a thoughtful liturgy? Have you ever wondered why our order of worship is designed the way it is? Well, here's why. As Paul kept emphasizing in our passage, when we meet for worship, Above all, we want our worship service to honor and glorify God, and we want to build up the church, to strengthen the church and the individual members of the church. And we do that by telling a story. Not just any story, but the story, the gospel story. And we attempt to do that every single week in every part of the worship service. The liturgy tells a story, and we tell the gospel in the way that we worship. Our family tries to... Uh, have this is increasingly difficult, but we try to have one meal at least at home around the dinner table um, once a week. It's not a particular night. We just try to set aside some time to do that. 
which would sound like it would be a special night, but it's really not. We just do it when we can. But anyway, we, we do it. And so we, we typically eat, and then we spend an extended time where we just talk. And so we may sit at the table for a couple of hours talking and laughing, and uh, it's really a, a, a special time, and I'm going to miss that desperately when the, when the kids are not able to come back for that meal. But So one of the things we talk about a lot is uh, the church service on Sunday, you know, and, and kind of what do you think about this? Uh, you know, let's talk about the sermon. Uh, what did Drew mean when he said that? And, you know, it's almost like that community group discussion, but we're doing it around the table. And so this is about, it's right after we, we planned the church maybe four years ago. So Matthew, my youngest son, is about 12 years old then, and he's our resident theologian. If we have any theological questions, he's the guy we go to. He spent a lot of time with me working on this sermon this week. I'm just kidding, he didn't, but he could have. Uh, but but he, he tends to have uh, some insight into some into theology. So we were talking about, the, and I don't remember what it was, but that particular sermon that week, and so I looked at Matthew, and, and uh, you know, again, he's 12 years old or whatever, and I said, what did you think of the of the sermon Sunday? And he looked at me and he said, Dad, it's the same thing it was the week before and the week before and every Sunday. It's the same thing. At first I thought, hmm. And then I thought, yes, that's it. Because we don't have any other story to tell, right? It's the same story every single week. Told differently, but it's the same story. And I'm glad he picked up on that. I hope you do too. So one, one principle as we try to tell the story that we have tried to adhere to, and hopefully you see this, is simplicity, right? We're not flashy, and you won't see us do a lot of hip things, primarily because we're not hip. I mean, Drew did wear the Calvinist jacket, I mean, the shirt today, but, you know, beyond that, we're just, you know, look, I think about it. Jonathan, Drew, me, we're not hip. We're just not. So... You, so you're not going to see, like, a lot of props and cool videos and drama and lighting and, and all that cool stuff. Because it's just, it's just not a, Drew's not going to zip line down to the stage, you know. Jonathan's not going to come in riding a horse or anything like that. We just, we, we think it, it's, we're afraid if we start doing stuff like that, the adornment becomes more important than the, the gospel, and so we're really trying to stay away from that. So simplicity is, is kind of uh, one of the things we do. We think that it's the best way to present the story and to keep the story the main thing. So our service is pretty simple and straightforward. Now, I want to quickly walk through our liturgy with you. Um, and I'm hopefully not going to make this boring, but provide some thoughts to hopefully make sense as to why we do what we do. So let me just uh, walk through it very quickly. And it's in your worship folder, and you can certainly follow along with the, with the topics there if you want to. So we begin at 9.30. We do start at 9.30, by the way. Um, and we sing a song or two. To uh, We call it Songs of Gathering and Preparation. And for some of you, this is the ish, you know, 9.30-ish. And the ish is those two songs for you guys. So this, these two songs help us gather everyone together, and prepare us for worship. And these songs typically are about who God is. This morning, all creatures of our God and King, how great they are. Those are the kind of things that we sing to really focus on how, uh, who God is and how great he is. And then we go into a call of worship, which is a reading of Scripture. This morning it was from Psalm 100. And this, this time is to formally call us out from where we've been all week into worship. 
it again, this scripture describes who God is and who we are in relation to him. And so we try to read a scripture that corresponds to the theme for that particular Sunday. Uh, Psalm 100 talks about worship, and that's what we use today. But that's our call to worship. And then we go into a prayer of adoration and confession. And this is a time where we pause and pray and recognize the holiness and awesomeness of God. And we spend some time thanking God for who he is. And then in light of the holiness of God, we're reminded that we're sinners and that we don't live up to his standards, and so we confess that sin. And then we sing the song of repentance, which gives us a chance to reflect on God's greatness and our sin. And once again, we realize the need for a Savior, and we repent through that song. And then we have the assurance of pardon, which is a scripture reading. And this is one of my favorite parts of the whole worship service, to be honest with you. We've remembered our sins, we've confessed our sins, and now we're reminded of the forgiveness of sins through the work of Christ on the cross. Grace and mercy are ours through Christ. Today we read Zephaniah 3.17. He saves us, he delights in us, he loves us, and he rejoices over us with singing. Hearing that scripture should give me great assurance and hope. And so then we do a greeting, which is really to celebrate our unity in Christ, and we're reconcile to one another as we are to to God. So we take a a minute to do that. And then we go into a time of songs of celebration, praise and celebration. Now that we're assured of his love for us and his free grace to us through Christ, we celebrate that by singing, right? And we try to sing songs that correspond to the theme of the message. And we're very careful to sing only songs that are theologically sound. And we do spend a lot of time thinking about that. We sing a lot of old hymns because we believe that God has spoken to people across history. The hymn we sang at the beginning of the service today, All Creatures of Our God and King, the words were written in 1200-something. They're old, but they're good. We also sing newer songs and hymns because we believe that God still speaks. Some people think that, you know, the music died in... 1786 or something, but we believe that God still speaks to songwriters today. So we sing those. Our preference, our worship style or preference is more contemporary than traditional. So because, you know, we have drums and electric guitar and we don't have an organ, but all that really is beside the point. It really is. How, what style music is beside the point. It's the content of the music that's important. Then we have a prayer of thanksgiving and intercession. Again, because of what we've heard and sung, we give thanks to God for all he's done. We recognize that everything is from him. And we also recognize our dependence on him. So we intercede, we pray for those around us, across the world, around our nation, in our city, our church. And we pray that his kingdom will come to our city and our world. That's our cry. And then we we have a time where there's a... proclamation of God's word, the sermon or the message. We read a scripture passage and we take time to explain it. The context that it was written in, explain it, and then how it applies to us. Now, in this church, you will not hear many how-to sermons. You're just not. I, I watched a, uh, a very, very popular TV preacher about two years ago. I, the only time I've ever watched it all the way through, I think. And the sermon was on 10 ways to lose weight. And maybe I was just convicted, but, but one of his points, one of the points he made seriously was drink more water. What? Drink more water? 
anybody can tell me that. That, that, that's not going to impact my life. It's not the gospel. And so you're not going to hear that stuff here. You're going to hear the scriptures because we believe the scripture is sufficient. So that's what we do. We explain the scripture as part of telling a story. And then we have songs of response. And these songs are, are really there to give us time to reflect on what God has, has spoken to us during the sermon, to allow him to bring specific things to our mind so that we can either thank him for those things or we can repent. And then we have the benediction, which is the confirmation of the blessing on God, of God on those whose faith is in Christ. So we go out of here knowing the Father's smile is upon us. We don't have to go out to try harder, to be better, but we rest in his finished work. And because of that, we can keep telling a story. And then on occasion, we celebrate sacraments. And we celebrate, too, baptism and communion. When we witness a baptism, we're reminded even though it's for somebody else, we're reminded of what he has done for us and that we're his. And then communion, as we're going to see in a few minutes, just continues to retell the story of our salvation. It reminds us that this should be my body and my blood, but it's his instead. So that's our liturgy. That's what we do to try to tell the story. It's all we got, really. We can't think of anything else that can change our city or world or us individually. That's it. So we keep telling it week after week with different scriptures and messages and songs, but it's the same story. And our prayer is that we will get caught up in that story. That's the story that will save marriages and rescue children and bring the lost to Christ. And that's how the kingdom will come to our cities and our homes. Now, as I finish up, let me give you just a few what I hope will be very practical things you can do to prepare for worship and maybe make worship more meaningful and impactful to you. First, prepare. Anticipate the worship service every week. One of the things we want this to be is different than everything else you do all week. This shouldn't be, this shouldn't be one, you know, I go to the office on Monday, I go to the club on Wednesday night, I go to, to uh, this on, and then church is, is Sunday morning. This should, be, this should be bigger than that. This should be a very, very special time for the believer, a time that you anticipate. Back in verse 26, you get the feeling that the Corinthians were, were excited about going to worship because uh, they thought about how they would prepare and participate in the service. I had the opportunity each week to pick out the songs that we sing. And so I find myself during the week dreaming about how those songs are going to sound on Sunday, right? Sometimes they do sound like I dreamed they would. But I just I sing them over in my mind, and that's one way that helps me anticipate Sunday. So I'll encourage you to not just let it show up, but to anticipate it, to think that it's something special to be here. 52 times a year we get together in corporate worship. So anticipate it. Second, and for some of you, this is going to be the most controversial thing I'm going to say all day, be on time. Now, I know what you're thinking. What does it really matter, right? It's not like going to work where I need to be on time or or going to my tea time where I have to be on time, or, or showing up at you know, my garden club where I have to be on time. It's not like that. This is, you know, they do those songs of gathering and preparation, really, to give me time to show up, right? Well, here's why it matters. If you and your family rush in because you're running late, then it's somebody's fault that you're late, right? And so somebody's going to get mad, and on the drive over, you're going to start yelling, 
and screaming, and then you're going to pull off the side of the road and get out and slam the... You, don't, you guys don't do that? You're going you're gonna to rush here, and you're not going to have time to let anything settle in before you just jump into worship. So if you arrive a minute or two early, maybe you can speak to a few people you don't know. Get to know someone new, settle in, and prepare your heart for the worship service. So as a friend, let me just recommend that you give it a try. It's amazing. The band, and we, we laugh about it all the time. We get up here and you hit the first chord and there are about 15 people out here. You know, you get to the end of the second song and it's full. And it's like, what just happened here? I have no idea what happened. So let me just encourage you to, to, be, to be here. Just give it a try. Third, engage in worship. Now, I don't mean that you have to sing loudly necessarily or clap or raise your hands. All that stuff would be fine, by the way. I mean, stay engaged with what's going on at every point in the service. For instance, when we get to the assurance of pardon, allow the scripture to assure your heart of his love for you. When the songs are sung, sing. Or at least don't frown at the guy leading the worship. See, God desires your worship. And as we read in our assurance of pardon, he is singing over you. And that should give us the confidence to sing back to him. If you can't carry a tune and you don't want anybody to hear you, and I know that's the case for some of you, you tell me that, say the words of the songs so that they can wash over you. We sing the songs for the words, so let those wash over you. And this is where your worship can have an impact. If someone attends our service who has not come to faith in Christ or maybe is seeking, they can be impacted in the way that you engage in worship. After all, if it appears to be boring to you, Why should they be interested, right? Last, every week, see the big picture, right? Allow the retelling of the story to strengthen you and to prepare you for the mission. Let the story become real to you. See, we can't think of anything else that can change our city or world or church or us individually than the story of the gospel, and that's why we keep telling it week after week after week. But it's the same story. And as I said earlier, our prayer is that we all get caught up in that story, experience that story. That's how marriages are going to be salvaged. And that's how the kingdom is going to come to our homes and our city. In just a moment, we're going to have the privilege of celebrating the sacrament of communion. It's one more way and maybe the best way that we have to rehearse the story of grace. So before we come to the table, let's pray together. Father, thank you that you have designed this, this uh, thing called worship so that we can uh, get together with our fellow believers and meet with them and with you. And I pray that you'd make us good worshipers, that you would make us people who anticipate being here, that engage in worship, and that really understand the story, that we get caught up in the story so that as we live our lives through the week, that we could continue to have that story impact us so that we could tell it to other people and share it with other people and live it out. So I pray that you would do that. And as we now uh, prepare uh, to come to communion, uh, would you use this sacrament, this very special sacrament, as a way to once again burn that story deep within our hearts. And God, we thank you for what you're going to do during this time in Jesus' name.
Uh, amen. Each week we get to give a benediction, which is a reminder of the assurance of pardon. As you go, God goes with you. Reminder, as, he, as you go, he sings over you. Uh, and as you go, from this rehearsal of the story, we would encourage you to rehearse the story daily uh, in your own heart and with your family. Uh, and may this benediction be a seal over you to do that. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.